So get, get 2 Samuel chapter 12. Two spots, you got lots of fingers, you can do that. Psalm 63, 2 Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> I am so glad you're here tonight. Let me give you a little bit of an update. Uh, I know a lot of you, you drive by and you're always thinking there's going to be progress on this building and up to this point, there just hasn't been, right? It's like for three months, we've been talking about a slab, and we've been talking about progress, and uh, yet there has not been any. Uh, hopefully this week, weather permitting, we'll start getting some concrete. This week, next week, we hope to have it all complete, all finished. Um, our finance committee met this evening, this afternoon, and they have got uh, numbers, bids for the building. And so they're going to take these numbers with some recommendations. They'll go to the church council. Okay, church council will then come to the church body, and there will be some big decisions that will need to be made at that time regarding uh, financing options and what our plan is, how we want to go about doing it. And so I want to ask you just to really, really be praying about this building project. Uh, Satan loves to come in at uh, times of great faith and bring discord and bring destruction. And so we're standing on the promises of God that this is going to be victorious, that he led us here, that he will get us through it, and we will praise him all the way uh, through the journey. And so uh, be, be praying about that. Make that a matter of prayer. It's a big, a big time in the life of our church. Uh, it's a big need for our children. You see the kids coming down every Sunday morning, and I'm just excited about it having some progress. I don't even have to say being done. I'm just excited about seeing something happen with a building, and I know that you are as well. So we have spent the last four sessions that I was speaking looking at David in Bathsheba. And so we looked at this, and we saw David's sin. We don't have time to go through all the details of it, but we saw his sin with Bathsheba, and then we saw his, his cover-up, which he got into great detail trying to cover up his sin. And then we saw where Nathan came and he was confronted with his sin. And then last Sunday night, we saw his confession. Psalm 51, he goes before the Lord. He confesses. He is repenting of his sin. He says, Lord, give me a new spirit within me. Give me a clean heart. I don't want this sin in my life any longer. And so for me, the next question is, well, what happened next? What happened next with this guy? Well, that's what we're going to look at in 2 Samuel. You see, we were at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, and that's where we see the judgment. Verse 10, if you have it open, we saw this. It said, now therefore, this is the judgment on his house. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And so God says, because of your sin, you can, you can have confession, you can have forgiveness, but there will be consequences because of your sin. Now I want you to flip through and look at chapter 13. The consequences begin to take place immediately. In chapter 13, we read about a son of David named Amnon. And the Bible says in verse 1 that he had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and he loved her. He saw this sister. He thought she was beautiful. He was driven by lust. He wanted her, and so the chapter continues, and he devised a plan to be with her. 
He had the, the sister, Tamar, come into his bedroom to prepare a meal, and then he tried to get her to come and sleep with him. She, of course, refused, and the Bible says that because he was stronger than she was, he overpowered her, and he raped her. And so immediately we begin to see consequences. There is the son of David who rapes his own sister. After this, another son of David, Absalom, finds out about it, and he is angry. You can imagine. I would be angry too, wouldn't you? And so he is very upset, but he waits, I think, two years is what the Bible says. And then he takes the opportunity, and he sees that his brother is killed. And so Absalom kills Anon. Okay? And so there is murder. After this, Absalom goes out, and he begins to hide. He knows he's done something wrong, and so he goes into hiding. And the Bible says at that point, David is weeping day after day. And as a parent, you can imagine, there is so much, so much just turmoil in his family. His son raped his daughter. Now his other son killed the son that raped the daughter. And so there's all this going on, and his family is falling apart all around him. And then finally, finally, Absalom comes back into Jerusalem. And when he does, he has a conspiracy in his mind, and he tries to usurp the power of his father. And so the Bible says that he wins the heart of the people, and the people love him. He's handsome. The Bible talks about his long, flowing hair. He's a natural-born leader. And so eventually he comes back into Jerusalem, and David hears about it. And David not wanting there to be bloodshed, David leaves his palace, he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes out and he begins to hide in the wilderness. Absalom comes into David's house and in front of everywhere on the roof, see the, uh, the similarity here? On the roof, he goes in and he sleeps with David's concubines, just like the judgment said would happen. And in the meantime, David is out running for his life from his very own son. Now, you can't even make stuff like that up, can you? I mean, that's a bad spot to be. His family is falling apart right in front of his eyes, and he's got to be thinking, this is my fault. This all goes back to the sin that I committed with Bathsheba. Now, with that context in mind, go to Psalm 63. Because what I find so interesting is when David is out in the wilderness, that is when most people believe that David wrote Psalm 63. How would you respond? What would your response be to God at a time like this? Your daughter was raped, your son was murdered. Your other son is coming to, to kill you, coming to destroy your kingdom, take your power. How would you respond? What would your relationship with God be at a time like this when everything is falling apart all around you? Everything, literally everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. You are stressed to the max your nightmare is coming true in front of your face. There, there's all this guilt. There's all this shame because you know that you caused this upon your family and upon your kingdom. So how would you respond to God? When you have tough times in life, 
Maybe you have health issues. Maybe you have financial problems. Maybe you have a problem at your job. How do you respond to God? Well, look at verse 1 of Psalm 63. And this is what it says. David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh it faints for you, as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. First thing I want you to see from the psalm is that God is his desire. Can you say that God is my desire? Just notice the passion of the verses before us. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul it thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There is a yearning inside the heart of David. He's not saying, I want to be a better guy. He's not saying, I want to be religious and I want to be pious. He's saying, God, I am seeking after you with everything that I am. There's this passion behind him that says, God, I must have you. God, I need you. You're the one that I want. He says, God, you are my God. What that reminds us of is the covenant. Remember way back in the Old Testament, it would say he is the God of Jacob. He is the God of Joseph. He is the God of Israel. David says, God, you're not their God. You are my God. And it's setting the stage of this relationship. God, you are my God, and my soul is thirsty for you. Reminds me of Psalm 42, verse 1. It says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you Oh, God. He says, God, I am thirsty for you. For David, God is the life-giving commodity of which he longs for. Now, remember the context. David is running for his life. He's out in the wilderness. He's probably having times where he is seeking out water, and he knows that without water, there is death. You cannot survive without water. And so he says, it's not water that I need. It's not food that I'm longing for. But God, as I need water to live, I need you to survive in my life. And I just wonder, can any of us in here say that? Can we look and say, God, just like I need water to sustain my life, I need you. God, if I don't have you, then I cannot go on in my life. And it's a, a phrase that comes up over and over again. Psalm 42, verse 2, it says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 143 says, My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. It says in John 4, you'll know this, Jesus said to them, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so I want you to be real honest for just a moment, just in, in your heart. Do you thirst for God? I'm not asking you if you like a good sermon. I'm not asking if you like to read a good book about God. 
I'm not asking if you enjoy when a good communicator speaks or if you like to listen to your, your favorite guy on TV. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking you about a program. I'm not asking you about someone else's opinion on God. I'm saying, is there something inside of you that longs for God? That says, I cannot imagine my life without God. When God seems distant, it kills me on the inside. When there's sin in my heart that separates me from God, I just cannot take it and I cannot stand it because I am thirsty for you, God. See, for, for most Christians, that just seems radical, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems like, man, that just pushes it so much. It's kind of like, David, calm down a little bit. David, you're taking this and you're going a little bit too far because this seems extreme. But what I really believe when I look at the scripture is that this is not radical, but it is simply discipleship. I believe this is the standard that Christ is calling us to, to be at the point to where we literally thirst for God and we want more of him. We want to study his word. We want to spend time in prayer. We want to seek after God because our heart needs it so much. It says in Matthew 10, it says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And we read that and it's like, well, wait a minute. That's tough, isn't it? I mean, really, it's tough. Lord, I've got to love you more than I love my wife, more than I love my children. And Luke takes it and goes even further. He says, uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, he's not saying you go around and just hate everybody. You realize that, right? He's saying that the level in which you love me is so extreme and it is so high that everything else seems like a hate. To be so committed to God, to be seeking after God at such a deep level that nothing else can even come close, that nothing else can even compare. That's what he's talking about. Luke 14, it, it goes on, and you know that we don't have to read it. You know the context. He says, which one of you deciding to go build a tower? will not first count the cost. You know, look at the plans. Make sure you've got enough money to, to finish the project. Because if you get started, then you run out of money, you look like a fool, don't you? So think about it. Realize if you want to go this route. Or, or which one of you going out to battle will not first see how many opponents are coming at you? And if you don't think you can be victorious, will you not send a peace treaty and try to avoid the battle? No, you will count the cost. In the same way, we must count the cost before following Christ. Because the cost says when we come to Christ, we are all in. It reminds me of the greatest commandment. The Lord said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. For this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what he's saying? If you want to be my follower... You've got to love me with every single thing that you are, everything about you. And so, so it goes back, and it's, it's just like David is talking. Lord, I am thirsty for you. I need more of you. My heart is aching because I don't have you in this moment. And then look at verse 2. He continues. 
He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, and so my lips will praise you. Two things that David catches when he gets this vision of God. He catches his power and his love. His power, which makes him realize that God is in control despite what he's going through. And I'll remind you of that no matter where you find yourself on this evening. No matter what life has thrown your way. And there may be some things that you're not real, real good about. And there's some things going on that are tough in your life. Despite where you are, God is still the one of power, and he is still the one of love. And so David said, God, your steadfast love is better than, than what? Than life. God, the fact that you love me and your love is never ending because he's experienced that love in his life. He says, God, the fact that you love me, that's better than even my own life. What is better than life to you? What would you die for in life? Probably not a whole lot, is there? I mean, you're thinking a spouse, hopefully, Leroy, right? Amen, okay. Maybe your children, I hope, right? Outside of that, there's probably not a whole lot. Things that you look at and you say, man, I would give my life for this. But David says, God, your steadfast love is better to me than life. And it reminds me of all the martyrs in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they went into the flames and they proclaimed, God, your love is better than my life. It reminds me of Daniel when he would not quit praying and he said, God, your love is better to me than my life. It reminds me of Stephen in Acts. Remember what he did? He was preaching to these religious folks and he would not stop. And the Bible said they were enraged and they attacked him and they picked up stones and they began to stone Stephen and what Stephen did was he looked up and he saw Jesus standing before the Father. And it was well within him. And he said, God, your love is better than life. Jesus says it like this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he it is that finds it. I wonder in your life, what would you give up? For Jesus? Would you give up your hopes? Would you give up your dreams? Would you give up your aspirations for Jesus? Would you give up the things in life that you hold on to, the things that are the most dear to you? Would you give it up for Jesus? Your very life, would you say, God, your love is better than even my life? I think of Abraham, Genesis 22. Abraham had longed for a son, and he had a promise from God that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. And God would give him his own son with his wife, even though he was way too old and his wife was not able to have children. God said, I will give you a son. Now, he tried to get outside the will of God, but that all came back. And finally, he received his son. But one day, God calls him and tells him to take that son and go to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice. 
Can you imagine how you would respond to that? There's no way, God. How am I going to do this? This was your promise. This son, I love him. But the Bible says that the next morning he got up and he took his son, he took some wood, and he began to make the journey. And as he made that journey and he took his son, he proclaimed to the world that, God, your love is better than anything else. And do you remember Jesus when he was getting ready to be crucified and he was calling out to the Father? And he said, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? I'm not looking forward to this. Is there any other way? But then he prayed and he said, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he was saying, God, your love for me and your love for the people is better than even my life. It's not a pie in the sky. It's not a prosperity gospel. It is the real, hard, true, here and now faith. The faith that says, God, I will follow you when times are good. I will follow you when times are easy. But I will also follow you when times are tough. I'll follow you when I'm rejoicing on the mountain. But I will also follow you when I am in the wilderness and I am running for my life. Because, God, your love is better even than my life. And so he says, God, I am thirsting for you. God, I need you. God, I'm looking for you. Look at verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He's talking about praise. I, I, will, I will bless you. I'm going to sing with my lips. I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to rejoice. And I find it so intriguing because he's at a time in life when you would say there can be no rejoicing, Right? It doesn't make sense to rejoice, but he says, God, because I know your love, I'm going to sing, I'm going to lift my hands, and I'm going to rejoice. You know what I believe? I believe as Christians here tonight, we ought to be the happiest people in Longview. We ought to be folks that when we walk into town, we've got a smile on our face because our sins have been forgiven. We've got a relationship with the Lord. We know his love. And so people ought to be able to see that on our faces. I think it is really a shame when as Christians we walk around with just a bitter, long face. And I'm not saying we don't go through tough times. I'm not minimizing any of that. But overall, our character, because what we have experienced, should be a character of rejoicing. So, number one, God is my desire. The next ones will go fast, I promise. Number two, God is my delight. Look at verse 5. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Don't you like that? I love good food. Don't you like good food? I mean, you think about your favorite food, maybe your perfect steak, and how you eat that steak, and then you just push back from the table, and you say, oh, that was good. And you can't even get up, you can't even move because you ate way too much, but you say, I am so satisfied. Here David said, God, because of who you are, my soul will be satisfied. And my mouth, he goes to it again, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. With joyful lips, God, I'm praising you. And when I remember upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of night, for you have been my help in the shadow of your wings, and I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you because your right hand upholds me. 
so, so he's just having a time with God, and he's saying, God, I am delighting in you. Remember Psalm 1? Blesses, blesses the man who delights in the law of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. For he is like a tree that is planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Why? Because he delights in the law of God. When you look back through the Psalms, you will see there are so many times that the Lord tells us we are to delight in him. And I think there are a lot of Christians who they come to church religiously. They might even read their Bibles legalistically, but they're not delighting in the things of God. They do it out of a a checklist. They do it out of a ritual, but they don't enjoy it. I think the difference comes when we look at the spiritual disciplines and we look at the things of God and we are just excited about it. I just wonder, were you excited to come and open his word tonight? Were you excited to come and sing his praises tonight? I can't wait to go to church on Sunday. I can't wait to worship. I can't wait to read my, read my Bible. I can't wait to have my time in prayer because my delight is found in God. And the last thing is this, God is my defense. Look at verse 5. He says, so my, well, I'm sorry, look at verse 9. That's, I just did verse 5. Verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for their mouths of liars will be stopped. And, and so he's basically saying this, God is my defense. I know it looks bad, and I know everything is falling apart around me, but if there's one thing I can trust in, I can trust in God. God is my defense. If there's one thing in your life that you can trust in, you can trust in God. No matter where you find yourself, no matter how difficult life is, you can trust in God. And so here's the connection We see David, and we see David living this life of sin. And so for me, the question is, how do I respond? How do I be a person that avoids sin in my life? Do I just work hard? Because some of us, that's what we do. We say, I can't do this, and I can't do this, and I can't do this. So in my life, I'm going to walk down this road. I'm going to keep my eyes shut, and I'm going to try to avoid all this sin. But some of us have done that, and we have come to the point that we realize it rarely works. It's a battle, but it rarely works. And so what I believe as we try to be men and women that honor God, the way that we live the victorious Christian life is what David is saying right here. And we begin to just immerse ourselves in God. James says this, it says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a promise. You draw near to God. It doesn't say he might draw near to you. It doesn't say he's likely to draw near to you. It says if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And so if you're looking at your life and you say, I feel like God is so far away. I feel like David in the midst of this sin because I have separated myself from God. The Bible says if you will just draw nearer, then he'll come to you. 
And so as we go through life, draw near to God. Galatians says this. It says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I want, I want to end with this. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit of God indwells your life? See, there's things in, in life that you don't have the power to overcome. There may be temptations, and on your own, you're going to give in every time. But because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, as we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I love that verse. And I believe it comes from the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that gives us strength, that gives us power. And the problem, I believe, in churches today is we are not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're trying to do everything in our own strength, and we're trying to run the programs, and we're trying to do the services, and trying to preach the messages, and trying to go through the music, and trying to have the classes, and trying to do all this stuff in our own strength, and we never stop. And think about the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it is when the Holy Spirit comes down that things really begin to happen. And so in your life, it's not about you. It's about the Holy Spirit that lives in you. You want to live the victorious Christian life? Draw near to God. And he'll draw near to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for this time that we've, we've had together, Lord. God, I pray that you've spoken to us through your word. Lord, I pray as we think of Psalm 63, God, that we will be challenged with the love and devotion that David has for you. Lord, he was not a perfect man. We've seen that. He failed in some big ways, and we know that. But God, afterwards,